Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services. This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm speaking today with Emily Hostage, a vice president at Burford Capital, which is a publicly traded litigation finance company. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm doing well, Ari. How are you? I'm doing very well. So, so tell us about your background and your role at Burford Capital. I'm vice president here at Burford. I'm one of the folks on the investment team, and I, in particular, focus on sourcing and structuring technology-related investments. That's because I was trained as an electrical engineer, and I practice law, as a lawyer, mostly in intellectual property litigation and things like that. Most folks on the investment teams at Burford are ex-litigators, which makes sense since that's the subject matter of a lot of our investments. But many of us also have complementary professional experience. So for me, it's my technical experience. I work in information theory and probability. For some other people, it's investment banking experience and things like that. What is legal finance, and how does it differ from other forms of finance? Legal finance is capital applied to legal risk as opposed to business risk. So if you understand the basic nature of corporate finance more generally, I think it's not that hard to analogize to the legal market. So, for example, a venture capitalist might invest in widget company. If the VC predicts that widget company's product has the potential to pay off in some big exit after seven years of investment and growth. Risky, sure, but that's the kind of thing that VCs are designed to understand. So suppose instead that you know Widget Co's chief engineer leaves the company and steals some trade secrets and starts a competitor. Provider of legal finance might agree to pay Widget Company's lawyers to bring a lawsuit if we thought they'd win their case after a few years of litigation. Risky, sure, but again, that's the kind of risk we are designed to understand. So the idea is similar, it's the medium that's different. And I should point out that this sort of thing is pretty common, so a lot of people just call it litigation finance, which is sensible, but there's a reason we emphasize the more general term legal finance. Litigation is one of the riskiest parts of the legal landscape. So there's an obvious demand for risk sharing capital in that space. But there are lots of other places capital can fit into a legal problem. Say you're an M&A target and the acquirer wants to escrow an insane amount of money for some weird outstanding tax law issue. We might price that escrow better since we tend to understand it better than traditional finance. Who is using the litigation finance component of legal finance? Everyone you'd expect, plus probably a bunch of people that you might not expect to use it. I should start by distinguishing consumer litigation finance, which Burford doesn't do. So consumer litigation finance means personal injury lawsuits, medical malpractice, cases that individual consumers would bring. There's a part of the market that does that. It's not something that we do. I'll speak to commercial litigation finance, meaning business-to-business disputes. That's things like contracts, intellectual property infringement, international arbitration matters, stuff like that. So in our world, commercial litigation, the people you'd expect to be using litigation finance are probably companies who you think actually need outside money to bring or defend litigation. Small companies, startups, basically the people who, if they might have a meritorious lawsuit, couldn't bring it if they wanted to, given the money that they have. Certainly those people seek us out since we're willing to bear the risk that a case could cost millions and and still lose. And by the way, that's what we mean when we say litigation finance is in our business typically non-recourse in nature. That means if the case loses, they don't have to pay us back. So that's what I think makes our capital so attractive. At this point, users of litigation finance also include multi-billion dollar companies. Now, they're realizing that they can lever their legal budget, if you will, just as they might lever the purchase of real estate for a new headquarters. 
basically at this point, anyone who might likewise use outside corporate finance has figured out that legal finance isn't all that different in nature, it's just different in subject matter. We actually just published a report on a survey that we did of a group of CFOs. The majority of them said they were very likely to recommend the use of litigation finance to their companies, which is interesting and perhaps not surprising since three quarters of them also said they had decided at least once not to pursue a good legal claim because of its impact on the bottom line. I think the general industry, not just people who are perceived to need capital to bring or defend litigation, the general industry is starting to understand the benefits that it provides. What are the advantages of taking outside financing for legal matters instead of using an internal budget, assuming you have one? The most obvious is the risk sharing feature. So when you use outside finance, you get to share the risk that the case might win or lose. Typically, when we provide capital on a single case basis, we act like a partial contingency. We'll fund the cost of the litigation plus a percentage of the lawyer's fees, but something between zero and less than 100% typically in exchange for a share of the recovery. So it acts a lot like a plaintiff's contingency lawyer might act. The difference is that there's a sharing of that risk so the lawyer isn't bearing all of it in the full contingency case, or the client isn't bearing all of the risk in an hourly fee model. That's important because those of us who understand litigation know that even in the best of cases, there's often still a pretty substantial risk that you could lose. It can be hard for either for law firms or for clients to bear that risk alone. The less obvious part of that risk sharing feature is how it scales. Say you're a company with a docket of about 10 cases at any given point in time. Maybe you think you can handle the uncertainty on your own. You figure on average a case is going to cost, like math easy, one to two million if it settles and five million if it goes to trial. And maybe you think only one in 10 is actually going to go all the way to trial. That's probably about right for trial odds in U.S. litigation in general. So you're forecasting a budget of five for the one plus nine to 18 for the rest. So we'll call it 14 to 23 million in total. That's sort of your cost of docket range. What if five of the 10 cases suddenly look like they're going to trial? And now you're talking 25 to the five plus five to 10 for the rest. So it's more like 30 to 35 million instead of 14 to 23. Not good. So even worse, obviously, if one of the budgets just blows up for some reason. So that's the kind of thing that puts pressure on companies to settle cases in a suboptimal posture, if you will. My guess is most companies do evaluate things like this with a probabilistic mindset. And that's good. I think it's important. But the whole point is, To spread that kind of risk properly, you need more significant scale. I think of every case as a unit of risk, so analogize it to flipping a coin. A fair coin has what you call 50-50 odds, but that does not mean you're going to get one heads and one tails if you flip it twice. You actually have a pretty good chance, 25% to be exact, of getting tails twice in a row. I won't bore you with the ins and outs of the binomial distribution, but at 10 flips, you think you've got like a 38 or 40% chance of losing more than half the time as in getting six or more tails. So point being, the more times you flip the coin, the closer you're gonna get to the underlying 50-50 expected outcome. So in the litigation context, ideally, if you wanna spread that risk around, your company needs to have a substantial number of cases, tens or maybe even hundreds to flip, if you will, before the overall outcome gets close to what you think it should be. That said, I sincerely hope most companies are not trying to manage hundreds of big ticket cases at any given moment. I'm being glib, but I think it still makes sense that Folks like Burford exist as larger institutional partners to absorb some of that risk and spread it out across a larger body of cases. We do manage hundreds of cases, and we essentially act in our market as a diversified portfolio of risk, so in the legal sector. On top of the quantitative benefits, there are all kinds of qualitative benefits as well. 
for instance, we kind of act like a free source of outside expert legal consulting because we actively manage every case that we fund. We don't control them. We provide capital in the passive position, so clients and lawyers still drive the case, but we're there as a second set of eyes and a second set of ears along the way. And it can also be really nice to tell your C-suite that an objective third party is willing to put money behind a case that you think is meritorious. In addition to that, our capital works, like I said, a lot like a partial contingency. So lawyers are earning at least some of their fees plus a contingent success fee if the case wins. And that tends to take some of the stress out of the client-counsel relationship since we're letting the lawyers take exactly as much risk as is appropriate for them. And likewise, the client isn't bearing all of the risk and having to pay hourly fees that have no sort of tie to the outcome. And on that note, it's also actually a great business development tool for law firms. It's a lot easier to pitch cases to clients when there's no out-of-pocket cost to them. It provides access between clients and counsel at a level that I don't think was previously possible. Clients can pick the lawyers of their choice. Lawyers can take the level of risk that they want to. So it's sort of an interesting gate-opening product. Is there a difference between how a law firm uses litigation finance and how a corporate legal department might use it? There's certainly a difference in how they approach it, although I think in the end, the product can match either person's requirements. I think corporates probably see it in the way that I'm describing. A way to share risk. It's a way to smooth out some of the uncertainty in the legal spend of legal budget. It's a way to unlock value that other people may not recognize. And on that note, I actually think they realize we're ascribing value to an asset that many other investors think is at best worthless and at worst a downside liability. Take the widget startup with the infringing competitor. Edging out that competitor with a lawsuit could very well double Widgetco's market share, but a traditional VC probably is not going to take that kind of risk and reap that reward. It's just not at the core of what they do. So they may see the value of the company without that potential doubling effect, however risk-adjusted it is, but we would. Law firms, on the other hand, I think they see us first as a way to access clients. So this is a new form of capital that allows them to take on clients they might not have been able to take on allows them to share in the upside of their cases, which I think creates better incentives so that they can actually pitch cases to clients that are funded to those who wouldn't be able to flip the budget. But the really cutting edge firms, I think, are actually realizing they can build their whole business on this kind of risk structure. But we're seeing smaller boutique litigation firms, people actually building risk models from the ground up, so no longer relying on the hourly fee model to retain people and compensate them, but coming up with fixed fee or risk-based structures in every single case that they take. And especially as they're small and they scale, going back to that coin flip analogy, it's important for them to have an institutional partner that can help offload some of that risk until they can scale to the point that they're taking the right amount of risk on their own. When determining whether to invest, how do you evaluate litigation risk? Same way other investors evaluate other kinds of risk, we just have in-house talent that's specific to our field. So an investment bank or a venture capital firm, you'll have in-house analysts and people who underwrite or investigate an investment opportunity in specific technology space, so artificial intelligence. Right? You'll probably have people who have some experience in that field or have access to experts in that field and can use that to gauge what the market opportunity looks like. So our in-house talent, our in-house analysts and underwriters, they're all former litigators or legal practitioners of some kind. So when an investment opportunity comes in, maybe it's the case, one or more of our underwriters will put the case through a very rigorous diligence process in which we look at things like the existing case record, if there is any, obviously, the strategic plan going forward as presented by litigation counsel. They'll do interviews and research into the experience of the legal team, the budget, and so on. So we really stress test fundamentally the strategic plan of the litigation and the needs that the company has for pursuing it. Internally, we'll be discussing and debating the different potential paths the litigation could take because there are always more than one. 
then we figure out what we think is the right probability weighted outcome. And we use that kind of forecast to decide whether we proceed, and if so, how we're going to price it. Every case is a little bit different, even within the same field. So particularly at Burford, I think we emphasize the idea that we really have to be responsive to the fact pattern at hand and the goals of our counterparty, which is the litigants and the law firm. Again, because we're not in a control position, it's very important for us to understand and believe in the strategy as presented to us. So even if I thought there were a better strategy for the litigation, I can't impose it on the party. So it's important for us to believe in that thesis from the get-go and also to structure our pricing accordingly. Suppose you need $10 million to fund a case. If we funded all of that on day one and took a return that was a multiple of that number, it'd be extraordinarily difficult, I think, to reach a settlement at a reasonable range for most cases, given the damages forecast that typically exists. So we often are funding not on on an entire dollar basis from day one, but we fund along the way in smaller tranches in the same way that you might pay your lawyers along the way in a case to make sure that the incentives are right to settle along the way. Again, we don't control the settlement decision, so we intentionally price things in a way that allows access to the different outcomes that we hear the litigant telling us are desirable. Obviously, the secret sauce of being successful as a business is in identifying the right matters and pricing them appropriately. It's also true in any other investment bank. So I think what's interesting about how we evaluate risk is that we often find we preferred opportunity precisely where the structural risk is most significant. Cases that are great on the merits, but for whatever reason, have to run a very challenging gauntlet to get to victory. And those are places where if there's any imbalance in resources as between one side or the other, that can end the case too soon. If there's any hesitation on the part of the claim owner or the claim defender to proceed just on the basis of how difficult it's going to be because it might impact the business in other ways, those are places I think where we tend to be most helpful because we're the type of company that can bear risk that is that significant and allow the litigant to proceed. Speaking of timing, at what stage of a matter is litigation finance most appropriate? I mean, as I applied, surely people can seek our help before litigation gets started. We do get a lot of interest before a case gets filed where the litigant will present the idea to us essentially in the plan and we'll evaluate it on that basis. But opportunities also come to us at pretty much any part of the litigation cycle, as long as there's still some sort of risk left to play out. So after a motion to dismiss or after summary judgment ruling, even after a verdict is rendered as the case is going up on appeal. The farther along it gets, the more the cards have turned over, so to speak. So it's almost easier to evaluate the risk the farther along the case is traveled. There are just fewer degrees of freedom at that point. On the other hand, obviously, the calculus is going to depend on whether you're in a winning or a losing posture as you go. So in the probability analogy, you go from having a green field, every possible branch of the decision tree. Farther along the way, you move farther down the tree, and so it's more of a conditional probability mindset. Certainly, we can get involved pretty much any time. But I would say, as this legal finance concept has caught on, fewer people are using it in an emergency or out of necessity. More and more people are thinking about it proactively and systemically in the way that they generally think about litigation. And it's sensible because it's always going to be cheaper to seek finance for something in a proactive posture than waiting until you desperately need it. But it also, to me at least, is a sign that people are building this into their institutional mindset. Where do you see the litigation finance market headed? I think we at Burford see it becoming an established component of the corporate finance market writ large. Frankly, I think it's really getting close to being there if it's not already there. Eventually, I think it will be treated as just another way to finance corporate operations like buying real estate. It will be baked into every CFO's and GC's mindset. 
But even more fundamentally, I personally see it changing the structure of legal practice, and I hope in a very positive way. And I think this extends even beyond my generation of lawyers. No one I know harbors any real love for the hourly fee law firm traditional model. It doesn't always set the right incentives. It oftentimes irritates clients. And not surprisingly, it's not a fun way to measure your progress and your compensation as a lawyer every single year. I'm seeing a lot of people in my generation of lawyers opt out of this model and try to come up with new and innovative structures that allow them to practice in a way that feels more authentic to how they want to be driven. And sure, there are and for a very long time have been contingency cases, but that's again like telling someone to start out working for a highly uncertain bonus and no salary whatsoever. Most people, much less risk-averse lawyers, are going to struggle to make that kind of thing work. And I do think there's a happy medium somewhere in between where you have some stability, some fee revenue, and some amount of incentive to do well on your cases. To me, that's exactly the balance that our capital is supposed to provide. So my hope is that we will allow lawyers who want to participate in the fruits of their labor to take the right amount of risk for them, allow them to scale despite perhaps working in a small, more boutique type of startup firm. In some ways, some small ways for now, perhaps, change the structure and the benefits of the legal practice. This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Emily Hostage, a vice president at Burford Capital, which is a publicly traded litigation finance company. Emily, thanks so very much. Thank you, Ari. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.